0: How are you? I'm fine. You don't look fine? It's quarter to 12. Where are the children? Nanny. They wouldn't like me before midday. What happened here? An exchange of views? Oh, Margaret. I forget what about. There are so many exchanges of views these days. I thought things had moved on. Well, they've moved on all right. He's moved on. On to the next one.
1: to The Crown, the official podcast. I'm Edith Bowman and this is the official podcast for the third season of the Netflix original series, The Crown. So far on this podcast, we've taken you behind the scenes and gone deep into the stories, episode by episode. We've spoken to many of the talented people involved in making The Crown on and off the screen. You may have noticed that we have yet to hear from two key cast members. Keep listening to hear more about a special bonus episode featuring Helena Bonham Carter and Olivia Colman coming soon. But now, back to episode 10, titled Cree de As the Queen prepares for her Silver Jubilee celebrations to mark 25 years on the throne, her sister, Princess Margaret, is in crisis. With her marriage crumbling and no support from the family, she embarks on a relationship with a much younger man. The toxic situation comes to a head when Margaret takes an overdose, which the Queen Mother describes as a creed cur, meaning a passionate protest. We'll be talking in depth about the events in the episode, so if you haven't watched it yet, we suggest you do so now or very soon. Coming up later, we'll hear from director Jessica Hobbs and executive producer Suzanne Mackey. We'll also meet production designer on The Crown, the visionary Martin Childs. But first, let's touch base with Peter Morgan, writer, creator and showrunner. I caught up with him again at his house in London and asked him about crafting the final episode of season three.
2: I remember telling you that ep 1's first episodes are hard to write and the next most devilish are ep tens because you have obligations beyond the obligation of the episode, and any writer would sit and share a support group with me about the horrors <laughs> of first and last episodes. And, and this particular one was was interesting because it really went wrong. So we, we have a wonderful director, Jessica Hobbs, and it was through no fault of hers. But she was shooting it, and after about halfway through the shoot, she rang me up and she said, I I really want you to come to the cutting room and have a look at what we've got because it doesn't feel right. And I looked at it, and it clearly didn't work. She was right to be alarmed and concerned. It It was an episode about the disintegration of... Princess Margaret's marriage, which didn't feel like where we needed to be at the end of the season. It does always need to reflect back to the Queen, not just actually, funny enough, in the first or the last episode, but in every episode. You know, I always keep trying to break away and make episodes about other things. And the reason for that is because she's not, a, she's not naturally a person you'd want to put at the centre of any drama because she's this remarkably undramatic woman. yeah. She doesn't throw temper tantrums. She's not cruel. She's not Tony Soprano. I keep, you know, I've, I've said in other interviews, what you want as a protagonist is a person like Tony Soprano, who, or, who you can get to do anything in any direction. You can get him to be ultra violent or ultra loving, and and he will play as both. Hmm. Uh, so, really, you have a complete carte blanche. He's a, he's a he's, he's a writer's dream, anyway. Here I am in Ep 10 staring in the cutting room at this footage, and it didn't feel like a concluding episode. It felt like the drama was, had been put in the wrong person's hands. And so we had to reorientate it and recalibrate it. And, and then it made no sense that in an episode about a disintegrating marriage, we also had to factor in the jubilee in some shape or form at the end. I was like, how do you do that? <laughs> and so, fun enough, in, in the rewriting of it and the rebuilding of the episode... It loses some of its symmetry, but it's the absence of the symmetry and its imperfections that actually, I think, make it special because I haven't engineered it. Mm -hmm. So, funny enough, even though it is a creation, it feels less engineered and created, it feels less schematic than some of the episodes which plop perfectly into my head as a sort of dramatic construct. There's less drama writing in it. And that's why I'm particularly fond of it, because I remember the struggles making it.
1: We'll hear more from Peter Morgan later, but now let's hear from executive producer Suzanne Markey. I asked Suzanne more about the challenges of concluding the narrative for season three. The endings,
3: they often elude us, actually. They can often be bound or with an event mm-hmm. like the Jubilee. In many ways, that's easy. Although, obviously, from a production point of view, it's <laughs> yeah. anything but easy. But actually, it's the intimate that's harder to find, you know, to really eke out of the story. So yes, in many ways, episode 10 is a perfect encapsulation of, of both the spectacle and the intimate that I think characterises the crown. And it's an episode where the weight of the world is yet again on Elizabeth's shoulders, both in terms of the country, in terms of the political landscape, striking miners and Heath and Wilson and blackout three-day week mm. and economic challenges, countries facing, you know, hardship. And yet at the same time, and of course this is where it's interesting, if that weren't interesting enough, what is interesting is also that, is that her sister, Princess Margaret's marriage is falling apart. And there suddenly you have the, if you like, the soul, the heart of an episode rather than the events. It's always about the emotions and the personal. You know, I think what Peter writes so brilliantly in this, uh, in The Crown, is is the sisters. And that Margaret represents dazzle and danger, if you like, and emotion. Mm -hmm. And Elizabeth, she has to be steadfast and reliable and she has to anchor the country and she has to anchor the family and she has to anchor her emotions. Margaret is flailing around and losing it and losing her husband and losing her control. Elizabeth is having to hold on to everything uh, and this all all this on the eve of the Jubilee where she has to stand in front of the country and be meaningful and um, and count still. Mm. Um, and so there you have, for Peter, for the director, for the actors, this incredible canvas.
1: One of the fantastic things that I've loved of this season has been her audience with Wilson yeah. and watching that relationship.
3: Oh, yeah. and Brilliant, oh. I
1: agree. Her favourite
3: prime minister after Churchill the only Prime Minister she invited, or she invited herself to have dinner with, which I always love that. <laughs> Can I come for dinner, please?
1: Yeah, because yeah, we saw the great scene from the end of season one with the dinner with Churchill. Yeah. And I remember watching that from the
3: audience for what feels like a lifetime ago, but that, again, very touching relationship between Wilson and, and, and the Queen and that he says to her, you'd make a great socialist. And, and that's touching in itself because I, I think we all know what, what he means by that. And that this left-wing chap actually could connect to her more than any of her, his Tory predecessors. And what I really love, and Jason Watkins plays it so, so sensitively, is that, you know, he's an Oxford Don. He's a he's a brilliant academic who could look at vast waves of text and remember them um, to memory and just record them. And that that great gift, if you like, at the beginning of his journey is sadly robbed at the end of his journey by Alzheimer's. And so this once brilliant man who could remember everything is at the end of the season denied that. That's kind of heartbreaking and very real, unfortunately. And he touches the Queen in his friendship with her. in that final scene, which, to my surprise, might not have been in the the episode at one point because, you know, there's so much in this episode. Mm. Could could the episode also withstand that final audience where he resigns, where he's forced to resign? And without it, you know, we would be denying such an important part of Wilson's journey. So we had to find a way to bring it in. And actually, it's yet another thing that sits heavily on the Queen.
1: It's another loss for her. It's another
3: loss, exactly. So without it, that, I think, final image of her being on her own, must I do it alone in the carriage has has even greater um, potency and resonance.
0: I shouldn't worry too much. Several of your predecessors had far more serious afflictions and they continued to govern without the public being any the wiser. (laughs) Uh, No, ma'am, it's uh, it's a mental health issue now. I I shall put myself in the hands of the doctors. Prime Minister, I am sorry. This will come as a terrible shock. Well, maybe, but, uh, no shock lasts longer than 48 hours. There's too much appetite for the next shock. I'll miss our sessions terribly. I don't mind admitting I let out an unconstitutional cheer when you beat Mr. Heath this time. Oh. I always said deep down you're a lefty at heart. Nothing to do with the politics or just a better companion. Although I wouldn't have said that the first time you met. No. You thought I was going to rough you lot up. <laughs> and look what a sentimental old royalist I turned out to be.
1: Here's director of episode 10, Jessica Hobbs. I asked her what it was like joining the team on such a massive show. I remember when it first
4: started, I sat down to watch it and I'm not a... You know, probably not a royalist. It started and that, like within 10 seconds, I basically I saw Claire Foy's face and then John Lisko appeared and I thought, that's Churchill? This is genius, you know, and went into it. But I didn't realise, I guess, before I started, even though Peter, I had lunch with Peter and talked to him and he said, really, by the time we get to the edit, it's just you and me and we'll be locking it off, that that would be true and it absolutely was. I mean, it's Peter and I and the other people involved on The Crown, but Netflix gives us an extraordinary amount of freedom. But in terms of all of the directors, Ben Caron was incredibly generous because he'd done two seasons. So we really talked to him a lot about the style and the feel of the show. Was there a real kind of rigorous structure to the way we we could look at it? I, I felt very strongly, and particularly by the time we got to episode 10, that I wanted it to feel a little more contemporary because I felt we were moving forward in time and I was trying to find ways, and I talked to Peter about this a bit too, that I felt that we could kind of let them out a little bit more. And with Margaret having the affair with Roddy and being able to go to Mystique and I started playing around with music, I thought, oh, this could be fun, Mm -hmm. you know. And Peter responded so brilliantly to that. The first time I showed him, I thought, he's either going to hate it or he's going to love it. Yeah. And he loved it.
5: All day long, I seem to I walk think on oh, oh, air. I wonder. You do it. You
3: do it. No, 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 I don't sing. I don't sing. Oh, turn it up. Oh, yeah.
1: turn, turn it up. Ah. I love this song. I want it louder. No way. Oh, oh, sing oh, tails. Oh, oh, <laughs> let's go. Oh, yeah. You talk about that breakdown of Margaret and then it's it's the ripple effects that that has and the relationship that she has with her sister and how you, know, you look back to episode two and where it is now and the difference in that relationship and how this breakdown of Margaret is affecting Elizabeth and what it's making her question and face and think about. I'll let you into a couple of secrets. So the arrival of the Queen at the
4: beginning and the end was all for one scene just at the end. But because I had time on that day and I loved that location, the exterior of Kensington Palace, I was like, oh, we could shoot from here and here. And then, again, one of the joys of The Crown is you have equipment and time and space and you can kind of, all those shots you've always wanted to do, you can mm-hmm. suddenly do. So I'd covered it a lot. So suddenly I realised I had two frameworks and I could bookend it. And Christian, who directed Five and Six, brilliant, had done a sequence with the Queen and Margaret, which couldn't find space in his episode. And I said to him, Do you mind if we have a look at that? And so that is that actual opening scene came from, I think it was. Episode six, but that didn't. That episode didn't have the time and space for it. Yeah. So the scene was sitting there, and I was like, "That wow. could be the beginning. This could be the end." And we started playing around with it, and that came from discussions with Peter, where we started batting around ideas. And Christian was wonderful. I rang him up and said, "Before I do any of this, do you mind if I use some of your material?" He was like, "It was great." And I've also got. And I'm like, "No, I can't use anything else."
2: <laughs> <laughs> However,
4: so I think that's true collaboration. Yeah. You know, you would hope that directors on shows would always be like that. With Sam, Christian and Ben, you really couldn't have asked for a better combination of people.
1: Someone that you work with really intensely, apart from Olivia, is is Helena on on Margaret's journey. And we see with that kind of dinner party, yeah. the bombasticness of her in this kind of group of people, she's just crying out for support and help.
4: I know. And no one listens to her. I love the fact that she's brave enough to ask. Most of us wouldn't put ourselves out there the way Margaret does. Yeah. But she says what she needs and people find that really confronting. And there's a kind of essential truth in what she's saying. You're my family. What are you doing? You're finding this funny. You're supporting him. Why is this okay? Why do you do this, Mummy? Why do you all do this? Why do you always, always take a
0: side? This is my birthday party. And when I tell you that my husband is out of the country, betraying me with another woman, instead of supporting me and condemning him, you just sit here praising him to the sky.
1: My family, my own flesh and blood, my birthday relationships is what this this show's all about you know it's a family drama it's about all these intricate relationships between all these members but when it comes down to Elizabeth and Margaret you know that goes way back to I know to the start it does and that scene where she comes to the palace to see Margaret in bed and oh can we talk a little bit about we can about that Olivia and I had a lot of – she'd been so careful
4: not to be emotional. And I was like, do you know what? This is your sister. This is private. What you were talking about in Aberfan is your sense of duty and your what you cannot show. And I know that, you know, in that beautiful scene at the end with Jason Watkins where she talks about her concern about Mm. it. But I guess I'd always read it as how could she reconcile what was expected of her in her job and her position with – what she sometimes felt or didn't feel and how she'd been she'd been taught to keep things so down a bit like Philip but her suppression is a bit more natural I -hmm. guess there's grey areas in everybody's life we all think we know how we're going to respond to something but we never do and so she was like great thank you (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> she was really I mean I find it very emotional even sitting there when you're directing it on the day but you know when that's working when you're not thinking about anything else you're just watching it and you're in it because yeah. I think one of your jobs as a director is to be the audience once once actions call things are happening everybody else can watch the technical stuff you've got to watch it and feel it and that's where that's where you build that kind of instinctual muscle I think
1: and I think as well that scene's so important in terms of her state of mind going into the Jubilee yeah yeah and in that courage, on her own. Both Martin Childs and, and Hannah,
4: one of our extraordinary art directors, she was like, we've we got to build it, we've got to build it. And <laughs> and I, one of the wonderful producers came up to me one stage and said, how many sides do you need? And I said, all of the sides. <laughs> all of the sides, all of the time. It's, I can't... I can't kind of three months out say I'll only see one side or you know and, 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 I, and I'm so glad we did because I think and it's her yes I know it's literally her in the gilded cage but I love the sense of isolation I, the sense of uncertainty the sense of duty within her but I really I became very compassionate towards someone I don't know over the course of working on the series and incredibly respectful for the job that she does What's your view of the Jubilee?
0: You must do it. You don't think it might all backfire on me? Ask yourself, in the time I've been on the throne, what have I actually achieved? You've been calm, stable and useless and unhelpful. This country was still great when I came to the throne and now look, So much for the second Elizabethan age, which Winston talked about. All that's happened on my watch is the place has fallen apart. It's only fallen apart if we say it has. That's the thing about the monarchy.
1: We paper over the cracks. Now it's time to shine a spotlight on someone whose work has been hugely visible on every episode of The Crown since the beginning of the show. Here's production designer Martin Childs.
5: I've been working on The Crown now for for over five years. I think, yeah, I started in September, whatever five years ago is. I've (laughs) lost count of the years. Yes.
1: (laughs) What's your official title? You're
5: production designer, so kind of everything you see on the screen. And and then actors step in and and hide some of the work.
1: (laughs) How dare they? (laughs) But you're the top of the tree because underneath you, you you know, all we see, there's so much that we see on screen.
5: That's right. When I say everything, it's not really everything because, you know... Whenever there's some VFX, you know, I try and keep maybe 70% of the screen belongs to the physical world. Yeah. And then it gets expanded. And when you see very, very wide of Buckingham Palace or something like that, it starts with a central section that's ours and then that gets expanded into VFX world. And that's the great thing about the VFX on this is that it's not, it doesn't intrude, it doesn't show off. It just enhances what's already done.
1: Well, that's the amazing thing in terms of when you think about the scale of what you work on, it's these huge tapestries of rooms and buildings down Absolutely. to to photographs of a family.
5: Absolutely. it's, it's You know, if you see a fountain pen, is going to appear on screen as big as the Welsh countryside in the case of episode three, yeah. in the Abervan episode.
1: Yeah. What was the research that you did initially in terms of finding your, I guess, your kind of mood board for this this incredible thing.
5: Things present themselves, uh, like Buckingham Palace. You, yeah. you can do a tour of Buckingham Palace. You know what the outside looks like. You want the audience to believe they're in the real Buckingham Palace. And so you recreate that as, as faithfully as you possibly can. And then in terms of the more sort of private apartments, you go into Peter's beautifully researched script and think, how can I interpret this architecturally? Mm-hmm. The only thing I knew about the private apartments is, is that it's is what's called architecturally as an enfilade, which is a, a series of rooms rather than a corridor yeah. connecting several rooms. So the rooms interconnect. So that felt like a good sort of starting point for the private apartments with um, Elizabeth's bedroom at one end, Philip's bedroom at the other end, dressing rooms in between. And you're constantly aware of, you know, if he's absent, you know it. And if she's absent... yeah you know it
1: every episode is filmic it's cinematic Yeah. thinking back to the previous two seasons where Margaret meets Tony for the first time in that whole the red wall yes. and yeah, that, that was, was uh, our
5: introduction of red for the very first time in the entire show and you kind of you, you save up things like that you know because this is going to be spanning years, decades you save up your first uh, red wall you save up your first mini and you save up your first glimpse of something extraordinarily green you know you save up colours for when princess margaret gets older i'm now on the fourth season I still haven't run out of colours. I still haven't run out of ways of doing things. I can still surprise myself that um, there are there are new things to do.
1: That's amazing to think of colours in that way, of, you know, you're saving them up as kind of special moments for certain yeah, things.
5: Yeah, yeah. Is this my opportunity to go lime green? Yes, it is. <laughs> <laughs> what
1: well, have been the highlights for you from season three then, in terms of being able to use something like that, or it's been a tricky situation that you found an incredible way to get around things, or just creating something?
5: Episode two and the tour of the United States when Tony and Margaret go to to the States was a a challenge. Um, You read the script to begin with and you think, oh, God, this is a series of obstacles put in my way. And then you read it a second time and it becomes a series of, I don't know, opportunities maybe. It was suggested that we would go to Spain. And so I looked at a load of stills of Spain and I thought, I think we possibly could tour the world here. And so in Spain, we found California, Arizona, and Nassau, and not just in Spain, but in a little triangle of Spain. Uh-huh. So you know, leaving other triangles of Spain for for future <laughs> future seasons.
1: Um, what was the biggest challenge for you in season three?
5: Aba van, um, and the just because of the sensitivities of yeah. the of the of the people who suffered that tragedy. It's difficult talking about the, the sort of logistical process you go through, but I guess the big logistical decision for us was to, when the school was intact, we'd shoot on location in Wales, when it wasn't, when it was buried, we built it. Because you can't go there yeah. to the place where it happened and yeah. and let them see it again.
1: Yeah. There's this extraordinary thing that you do where you use real... Uh, stately homes and grand houses, be it um, Lancaster Houses is, is one um, that you use, but uh how you also you have to navigate through that in a way that you know there's things that you can move and can't touch and you can add to and all that kind of yeah, thing yeah the neck curtains is something that i discovered that's right yeah the neck curtains the at lancaster house curtains. were
5: not allowed to move because uh they are bomb proof neck curtains so who should knew? the place yeah who knew <laughs> we <laughs> did when well, we tried to remove them um but the other thing is that all of these country houses that we go to, I actually have a map now that I wasn't able to draw until we got to season three of how all of the country houses and the sets that we've built and the backlot that we've built at Buckingham Palace, how they all connect. Yeah. And so I have a sort of map of our, it's not fictional, but our Buckingham Palace, which has sections of these and how they all interlock
1: things are almost changing outside of Buckingham Palace in their world. They're almost slightly playing catch up in ways. Yes, as well. yeah,
5: they are They are moving very slowly and it's, it's again, you know, leave, using the established sets to represent the establishment has helped and you have that progress very, very slowly. And also there are people within the royal family who are going to move faster than others. Margaret being a case in point and yeah. Anne being a case in point. So she has a moment of being a teenager early on in season three. So you're able to do teenagery stuff while she's listening to Rescue Me, I think, by Fontella Bat. Yeah. Um, and with Margaret Margaret, you know that she's more progressive because of our, she entered via that red room we talked about earlier into a younger world, a world of the 1960s. And we kind of keep with that. And she finishes up indeed with with a younger companion in, in, in season three.
1: And is that something you talk about when you talk to Peter once you've read the script in terms of, you know, that collaboration seems to be such an important part of this this machine that has been so successful between those different departments, you know, making yeah. sure that that conversation is open and, and constant. Really,
5: that conversation happens in one big way at the beginning, and then um, and then we sort of stay true to that conversation. We have a little tone meeting, in which I sort of present what what I think the season should look like, and from then on, it's keeping in check your urge to move forward too fast you know, don't go to Austin Powers in the 1960s stuff. <laughs> yeah. And also to keep in mind that nobody lives in a fully 1970s house. There are always bits of 50s and 60s there. So you kind of anchor even people who are moving through. Yeah. You anchor them in the past a bit. you Keep check on yourself, not to overindulge and and not to enjoy yourself too much because I'll run out of things, run out of ways of travelling through time.
1: Was there a difference for you coming on to season three with it being a whole new cast?
5: The biggest thing to do in terms of character was to take on um, Princess Margaret's apartment at Kensington Palace So, uh, because she's one of the more progressive ones. You know, Elizabeth and Philip live in this world that hasn't moved on very much.
1: That scene at the dinner table where they're all there for her birthday.
5: Yeah. yeah. You know
1: she's kind of she's she's kind of quite gregariously dressed and yeah. in comparison mm. to everybody else around that table and kind yes. of it's
5: that was a case in point as well because I used an extraordinary shade of green that I worked hundreds of years ago on Jane Campion's portrait of a lady, and we used that shade of green in a in a room. And I thought at the time, "Wow, this is a bit radical." Janet, the fabulous Janet Patterson, was designing it, and she chose this shade of green. And then I discovered that actually it was used a fair bit in country houses, not often, but occasionally. And I thought, now is the time to use that shade of green. And um, in a way, it didn't start off with me thinking, let's use this green. It was Amy Roberts coming in with two samples of fabric of what... Margaret's going to wear and what Elizabeth's going to wear and I thought aha it's time for that shade of green
1: (laughs) I've got confession to make so we Mm. were at (laughs) Street.
5: should we stay (laughs) on microphone
1: (laughs) Uh, we came down to Street, and you were very busy off somewhere but we we came into your office very briefly and I could have spent like an hour in there, just looking at, oh, at all your pictures. Oh, lovely. I wish I'd been there. Um, because you have all these amazing pictures yeah. of, of kind of inspiration or, yeah. or reference points and, 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 and things it's, as it's well. very
5: I fill my room not just with pictures of rooms and stuff. Yeah. You fill the room with, I don't know, pictures of Julie Christie or something to represent the 60s and the Beatles. It's very important to think of those things as sort of symbols of, um, of progress. Yeah. And, and then you can work out how to represent that in a... Architectural or interior design, anyway.
1: Yeah, how do you decide what pictures are going to be? You know, what? How do you decide on what they are going to be?
5: I have a fantastic graphics department, and they organise um, still shoots with with the actors, and sometimes they will find real uh, photographs from the time or that will recreate photographs from the time and do head replacement, for example. So <laughs> um, And and they will adjust the, the lighting so that it all looks as if all these people were in the photograph at the time.
2: Wow. Because very
5: often, you know, you can't get all of these people into a room.
1: In episode 10... Um which, you know, is it's a bittersweet moment because it's the end of the season, yeah, uh, for us as fans of the show, this incredible courage
5: that we see uh,
1: <laughs> Olivia in that she you know that the, I believe you built
5: we did build it we did build it yeah um, how was that always the best thing to do is to start with the skeleton of a carriage so we we started with, with some existing wheels and some existing axles okay. uh, everything else is new wow. and, and was built by this fantastic uh, company cool called Anarchy, and they made the most beautiful job of it. And, you know, we went through all sorts of crazy discussions about how we could possibly keep the cost down of this this carriage by, you know, maybe only build the left-hand side of it or something like that. And, and actually maybe in the final cut you do only see the left hand side of it but it's not going to help yeah. it's not really going to help in the long run so yeah we built the entire carriage and and therefore in the hope that one day we'll use it again because it's parked on stage 5 taking up valuable space where there could be a set
1: Well that's the extraordinary thing is when from, from having this wonderful opportunity to come down to Elstree and see this set and there was various things being built we went on the airplane you know that's been used for lots of different flights yeah. that recyclability of everything you know in terms of how these sets one day are this then they're that I can't get my head around how all that
5: happens. You you grab what you can in a way and and there's been a case and this is giving away nothing about season four other than than our recycling capabilities and that is that uh, there's a royal enclosure at the Braemar Games when they're up at Balmoral and um, We've just recycled that and turned it into one of those green tea shacks that sit in in squares in London. (laughs) So, you know, we do our best to turn things into other things. And I particularly like it when it's something, you know, grand being turned into something less grand.
1: Throughout season three, we've seen the Queen struggle to express her emotions. In episode 10, we finally see her openly express them. I asked Peter Morgan about Olivia Coleman's performance in the emotional final sequence of the season.
2: I remember when we filmed the death of the Queen's father, when, when she comes back from her tour and Claire Foy, and she sees it in the second episode of the show, and she sees her father's body lying there. And when she cried and turned away from the camera, I sort of, I remember issuing an edict saying, that is the first and last time we will ever see this woman cry. We will never see her cry ever again. And this feels to me like the only time to make an exception for that. The the interesting thing for us is that we have in Olivia the most naturally emotional person I think any of us have ever met. I mean, the strength of her emotions are very close to the surface. And it's the same when it came to this moment. You know, the tears came naturally. She, they were not written, but when they came and she was fighting them, that felt like a really good thing to show. It felt true, it felt accurate. And there's so much that's been written about the closeness between the two sisters. And you hear that so anecdotally from people that I've spoken to, who knew them and knew the relationship and had witnessed it firsthand over many decades. And so I think this was entirely appropriate.
0: For the record, I think there are many things you're good at. Name one that's actually meaningful. Being a sister. No need to humour me. I'm not. Of all the people everywhere, you are the closest and most important to me. And if by doing this, you wanted to let me imagine for one minute what life would be like without you, you succeeded. It would be unbearable.
1: Then we must both carry on. What would you say has been the journey from of the Queen from episode one to episode ten in this season?
2: I'm quite arc-resistant in terms of a show that we're in mid-stride. We're not at an arc point. I think that, you know, whereas the first couple of seasons were about... Her struggling to adapt to something and to learn the rules and to realize how many people she was actually up against, and to try and keep a marriage afloat in the middle of that, quite quite a young marriage, a new marriage by the end of this season, it has become a family drama, a really properly a family drama at the beginning of the season, it was still the queen and and Philip in a more settled situation, and uh, she 's a more settled sovereign by the end we 're in a full blown family story with Charles having come of age Anne having come of age them having their own complex emotional lives. And that's definitely where we're headed from now on.
1: You talk about episode 10 being um, tricky, chaotic. But did you know how it was going to end? Did you know that chaos had to lead towards that specific way that it was going to end?
2: It was a bit like one of those consequences drawings where you've got the top bit looking like a nun, the middle bit looking like a nun and the bottom bit being like a surfer. And you sort of, oh, this it doesn't quite make sense. <laughs> we've got the wrong ending to the episode that we've just spent 45 minutes telling, which is Margaret's journey. But somehow into that conversation about Margaret's low point, we made it also a conversation about, well, actually that of the two of us, one of us has got to keep going. Must I do it alone? And that it was a a baton pass, as it were, from the Margaret story to Elizabeth story. You cannot go because what would I do without you? And then Margaret saying, yeah, but there is only one queen. And so that you go from Margaret's, you know, low point and loneliness to the queen's.
5: And now, the poet laureate, Sir John Benjamin. God save the queen. In days of disillusion, however low we've been, to fire us and inspire us, God gave to us our queen. She exceeded young and dutiful, to a much loved father's throne. Serene and kind and beautiful, she holds us as her own and 25
0: years later, so sure her reign has been that our great events are greater for the presence of our Queen. For our monarch and her people, united
5: yet and free, let the bells from every steeple ring out loud the jubilee.
1: I'm Edith Bowman, and my special thanks to the guests on this episode, Peter Morgan, Jessica Hobbs, Martin Childs and Suzanne Mackey. Join us next time for our special bonus episode of The Crown, the official podcast, when we'll look back across season three with Peter Morgan and hear what happened when I went over to Helena Bonham Carter's house. It was hilarious with Margaret, who was incredibly quick-witted. She'd look around very, very slowly... (gasps)
0: Like, yes, ma'am, do you want to have tea? And it'd be like... There's
1: always a pause before, a dramatic pause, and then, what? (laughs) (laughs) I love it. And caught up with Olivia Coleman on the set of season four. It's so lucky that we all get on. When the family are in, I get genuinely excited. We play games. We're all sitting in the sitting room and, you know, playing parlour games, particularly Josh. Subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts.